Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Paul Rann. Question number one, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, sir, before listing my engagements, I am sure the whole House will join with me in congratulating the Right Honourable Member for Whitney on the birth of his son yesterday. We wish him and his family well. This morning, I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others in addition to my duties in the House. I will have further such meetings later today. Paul Rowan. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Prime Minister, the Leader of the Opposition has offered the support of his party to get the Government's Education Bill through this House. Is the Prime Minister aware that in Rochdale, Labour is in coalition with the Conservatives? Can he envisage such a thing happening here? <laughs> well, I, I tell him what I don't need to envisage, but what I can tell him as a fact, that in his area, thanks to the Labour Government, we are spending an extra £1,500 per pupil in his constituency with more teachers, more teaching assistants and greater investment in schools. Also, the results are up as well. So I think the Labour government is doing a good job and I thank him, I thank him for giving me the opportunity of saying so. <laughs> Sir Peter Salisbury. In case he finds himself momentarily concerned by the recent Dunfermline by-election result, can I uh, ask the Prime Minister... Can I ask the Prime Minister to cast his mind back barely 18 months to the similar by-election result in Leicester South? If he, if he does, he'll note the same swing against the government, the same media predictions of disaster, the same devastation for the Tories, and the same temporary jubilation on the Lib Dem front benches. Will the Prime Minister join with me? in looking forward with confidence to the same outcome at the next general election. Well, we certainly hope the result will be repeated. William Hague. Uh, Mr Speaker, uh, Mr Speaker, May I thank the Prime Minister for his good wishes to my right honourable friend and his family, which I will convey to him. It's for the first time in history at Question Time that all three parties have been represented by a stand-in for the real leader. Does the Prime Minister agree with his former Home Secretary that there was a deep reluctance to act on the information coming out of Abu Hamza's own mouth? No, I don't agree that there was a reluctance on the part of the services to act. But what I think is important to realise is that the services themselves felt that it was only when they raided the home of Abu Hamza in May 2004 that they had the sufficient evidence under existing law to prosecute with success and that is of course their decision. But the very point I would make to the right honourable gentleman and to his honourable friends who have been saying why wasn't action taken earlier, it's precisely because we want to take action earlier that we need the legislation before the House. And with the greatest respect to the right honourable gentleman, I hope he understands that what he and his colleagues will be voting for today will significantly dilute and weaken the measures attacking glorification that are absolutely...
absolutely vital if we are to defend this country successfully against the likes of Abu Hamza. Mr Speaker, wouldn't it be better to have a watertight law designed to catch the guilty rather than a press release law designed to catch the headlines? The Home Secretary said this morning... The Home Secretary said this morning on the radio that he wanted to deal with those who seek to exalt terrorism for the reason of trying to get young men to behave in an unacceptable way. The House of Lords amendment, which we support, says that we should create an offence of describing terrorism in such a way that the listener will infer that he should emulate it. So why is the Prime Minister continuing to posture on this when he could have cross-party agreement in accordance with the wishes of the Home Secretary? Let me go straight to the substance of this issue and explain why I disagree profoundly with what the Right Honourable Gentleman is saying. First of all, if we take out the words glorification, we are sending a massive counterproductive signal. It, it is a word I think that members of the public readily know and understand and juries would understand. It is in the United Nations resolution and it is to send completely the wrong signal to take it out. However, there is another point and he touched upon it. And let me just explain why I disagree so strongly with the position the Conservatives and Liberal Democrats have got. He mentioned the terms of the clause that he is supporting, which is about the listener. The very point about that is that it does not cover, therefore, written statements or images. Now, if that is the case, in other words, it may deal with a sermon, but not with a placard. I find it incredible, I have to say, that at this moment, after what has happened in these last few weeks, that we are going to dilute the law proposed in that way. And as for political press releases, let me just tell him, he's been writing in the news of the world over these past uh, few months, perfectly understandably, his basic case there has been that the government's not been tough enough. Indeed, let me quote what he said just a short time ago. Tony Blair is always telling us to be strong in the war on terror, but there's no point being tough the world over if we can't arrest people in our own backyard. That's, yeah, 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 yeah. That's what he says. That's what he says when talking to the news of the world. What he's voting for today is precisely the opposite. What kind of message does it send when someone like Abu Hamza is at liberty to encourage murder and racial hatred for years on end, as happened under this government? What kind of message does it send when he wants to send signals when people are on the streets two weeks ago inciting violence and murder and no one has yet been arrested? So the, the, the government has let Abu Hamza preach hatred for seven years but arrest people who heckle the Foreign Secretary at the Labour Party conference. There are old powers that he won't use, and there are new powers that we have seen abused. And it is the opinion of all decent lawyers, he should ask one, he's probably got one at home, uh, that, the, uh, that, the state, that the House of Lords amendment, the amendment that we uh, support, covers more than written statements, and that should be able to put his mind at rest. Isn't it the case? that the proper enforcement of existing laws and the careful consideration of new ones would be better than this brand of ineffective authoritarianism. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry, but as ever with them, the jokes are good, but the judgment not so. And let me explain to him exactly why what he's saying is wrong. 
the words that he uses in the amendment he's supporting and the Liberal Democrats are supporting, and I hope his honourable friends realise this, refers to listener. That does not, therefore, mean that it covers images or placards or written statements. Therefore, to support what he is doing will significantly weaken our ability to prosecute the very people that he was on television complaining about a couple of weeks ago. And let me point out that's not all that they've done to weaken the legislation. They are also changing the test so it is not, as we say, an offence being committed if the public could reasonably be inspected to infer, it is would infer. In other words, he's imposing on the prosecution a subjective test, which is harder to do. Furthermore, he is taking out, and so are the Liberal Democrats and all the Conservatives who will vote for this, any reference to glorification in the prescribed groups. That will significantly weaken our ability to prescribe groups that are glorifying terrorism. And, well, I'm afraid honourable members are going to have to understand that when we take out any reference to glorification in this statute today, people outside will infer, I'm afraid, that we have decided to dilute our law at the very moment when we should be strengthening it and sending a united signal that we're not going to tolerate those who glorify terrorism in our country. Over 100 cancer patients are currently receiving the licensed drug Tarceva, but Morecambe Bay Primary <coughs> Care Trust is refusing to prescribe this drug to my constituent cancer sufferer, Paul Bold, despite the fact that his consultant feels it could help pro pro prolong his life. Can the Prime Minister tell me who he believes should make these life or death decisions. Should it be Paul Bowles' doctor or should it be an NHS manager? Well, of course, my honourable friend is right in, uh, right in saying that it should be clinicians that take these decisions. I mean, I will look into the specific issue that she raises, which I'm obviously not aware of, and I will write to her about it. Uh, but it's important to realise that we want, of course, to give everybody the, the drugs that can help them prolong their lives. That's why there's been a massive expansion in the number of people receiving those drugs under this government, both for cancer and for cardiac uh, care. But it's important also that we ensure that this is done in a way that is most effective. So I will look into um, the, the, the situation of the person she has raised with me. St Mingus Campbell. Aye. May I associate my honourable and right honourable friends with the expressions of congratulations which the Prime Minister gave to the right honourable member for Whitney. Perhaps the Prime Minister would like to take the opportunity of welcoming another new arrival, namely my honourable friend, the member for Dunfermline West Fife. Uh, and if he has any tips as to how my honourable friend should deal with his new constituent, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, I should be very happy to pass them on. But rather than creating Rather than creating ambiguous and controversial offences such as the glorification of terrorism, should not the government be introducing an effective and practical measure by permitting the use of telephone intercept evidence in our courts so that we may bring suspected terrorists to trial? First of all, as the right honourable 
gentleman knows perfectly well. The reason why there is a debate over intercept evidence is the view of the security services, not held throughout the whole of our law enforcement services, that if we allow intercept evidence, that would damage our ability to prosecute terrorists or organised crime. That's the reason for it. It's got nothing whatever to do with civil liberties or a desire not to take action. And I suggest that he mentions that because he doesn't want to face up to what him and his colleagues are actually going to do today. Now, let me just make one thing clear. The term glorification, in my view, is easily understood by members of the public and by juries. They know exactly what it is, and they know exactly what signal we're going to send out if we remove any reference to it in the legislation today. And I simply say to the right honourable gentleman and his friends, they should think again, because by weakening our law on terrorism at this time from what was proposed, we will send the wrong signal out to the whole of the outside world and we will do no service to those people in our police and law enforcement um, uh, agencies who are desperately anxious to get on with the job of prosecuting people. Everyone understands the meaning of glorification. He ought to look at the definition, the definition of the Act, which is opaque to say the least. But to go back to the issue of telephone intercept evidence. It's used in almost every other European country. The problems he talks about can be met by adequate safeguards. If it's good enough for them, why isn't it good enough for us? For the very reasons our security services give, and I know exactly why he wants to raise this, in order to divert attention from the actual issues in the Act there, and I think that's pretty obvious for everyone. But let's just be quite clear about this, because it's not just, as I was saying a moment or two ago, that the Conservatives and Liberal Democrats are combining to take out glorification from the offence. It's also taking out any reference to glorification from the list of prescribed groups. And what that means is that those people who are glorifying terrorism, unless it can be proved they are actively inciting terrorist acts, what that will mean is we can't prescribe them. Now, again, I think we've got to send a very clear message out to these groups. This type of behaviour is not tolerated in this country. There is freedom of speech, but it should be exercised responsibly. Mark Tammy. Uh, my right honourable friend recently had a bad experience flying or trying to fly on an out-of-date American aircraft. May I, may I uh, su suggest, if he is looking at Blair, Blair Force One, that uh, he, he looks for modern, uh, reliable Airbus aircraft uh, to, to operate it? Yeah. Well, I, I thank him for that kind of advice. Uh, and I, I certainly would pay a, a tribute to all the... Airbus um, employees who do such a marvellous job, my own friend's constituency and elsewhere. And it is a remarkable, a remarkable example of European cooperation. Yeah. Because 30 or 40 years ago, I think people would have found it very odd to think of a European conglomerate being able to compete with Boeing. They not merely compete with Boeing today, they do so on equal terms and very effectively. Elvin Lug. Mr Speaker, the uh, Prime Minister will recall the manifesto commitment and his personal promise given in 1999 that everyone who wished to access NHS dentistry services would be able to do so by the end of 2001. It's now 2006 and there's one NHS dentist in North Wales. When, if ever, will the Prime Minister keep his promise? Yeah. He's certainly right in drawing attention to the huge problem there is. The only answer to it, I'm afraid, is to um, hire more NHS dentists. That's what we're doing. We're bringing them in from wherever we can, and we're increasing the number of dentistry places. Unfortunately, we cannot force dentists, however, to go back into the National Health Service. Edwin Billy. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Cast metal manufacturers, indeed other metal manufacturers in my constituency, are reporting increases in energy prices of up to 
50% for electricity and 300% for gas. These are considerably higher than faced by their European counterparts. Uh, could my right honourable friend tell me what plans the government have for creating a level playing field in energy costs and supplies for British manufacturing? My honourable friend is absolutely right to draw attention to uh, this issue. And there is the report tomorrow by the European uh, Commission, uh, the interim report on the gas and electricity markets, and it's important that we drive through a level playing field right across Europe. That's very much in our interest. I mean, obviously, world energy prices have been rising. Traditionally, uh, UK for the past decade has had energy prices lower than many other EU member states, but it's correct. They've been rising um, over the past few months, and I entirely agree with him. It's in the interest of our country and actually of all of the European Union that we both liberalise the energy markets and create a level playing field for customers, whether in the UK or elsewhere. Anthony Steen. Again, I've got no current plans to do so. Anthony Steen. Mr Speaker, if the Prime Minister had come to St Kilda's, he would have seen the importance of respite care for the three-quarters of a million people who suffer from Alzheimer's and their carers. And is he aware that the mental health trusts are closing down respite and residential care facilities which were purpose-built and forcing the carers to find the money to pay for care which was formerly under the NHS and provided free? Now, is this no longer going to be an NHS facility and are mental health patients going to have to find the money to have to be looked after by their carers? Well, first of all, I, I would join him in paying tribute to all those carers who, who work in nursing homes and who also look after people who are suffering from Alzheimer's and other related disease, diseases. In the end, however, as he will know, I mean, this has got to be a matter for the local services within their budget to decide how they configure those services. I understand there is a, a proposal that they put forward for change in the area. I know obviously that will be fiercely fought over as these things are, but I hope he will understand that it couldn't be right in this instance for central government to intervene in how local services are, are provided. Ian Davidson. Uh, will the Prime Minister reject any proffered advice on the subject of the Dunfermline by-election from the elderly tough opposite? And would he, would he accept? Would he accept that this was? Would he accept that this was not a positive vote in favour of a party which remains one of unprincipled opportunism? But it was, it was a vote from loyal Labour supporters indicating that they wish no longer to be taken for granted. Well, I think uh, my honourable friend makes his point very well. <laughs> William Higg. <clears throat> when the Deputy Prime Minister said of local government last week, if you want to have a unitary, then you can have a ballot. Discuss it with the people, but if you want it, fine. What exactly did he mean? Uh, I think it's very, very clear, and I'm just surprised... I'm just surprised the Right Honourable General can't follow it. We were hoping for an up-to-date translation, but uh, what the Deputy Prime Minister seemed to be saying in his own way 
was that, uh, if I can help him on his own government's policies, was that before any county or district council is abolished, all the residents would be able to register their preference in a referendum. That would allow them to keep both the counties and the districts if they wished. So will he guarantee that wherever people vote to keep both counties and districts, they will indeed be retained? Well, as somebody who uh, represents a seat in County Durham, where we've got a county and where there are districts, and where this debate has been going on certainly for all the time I've been a Member of Parliament, obviously it's important we proceed by consulting people and by making sure that we take into account their wishes. Now, as I understand, we will publish proposals on the exact way of doing that uh, in the weeks to come. But there is, a, of course, a case, a strong case, which I happen to support in the case of my own county for unitary authorities. Um, but there will be many, many different views expressed, I'm absolutely sure, in my constituency and that of the right honourable gentleman. William Higgs. Well, I know it's a long time since I've been asking questions, but it seems even longer since we had an answer in the light of that, <laughs> light of that particular answer. Can he not ha now have a... A deathbed conversion to democracy, as the Chancellor asked me to call it, and, and ensure that the people are listened to, that if they wish to retain their existing local government structures, they are allowed to do so, and that he gives them the opportunity to end the drift to regional government that is unelected, unaccountable and utterly unwanted. Yeah. I mean, there's no need for a conversion to democracy in my case, because I remember... No, because I remember he and I stood in a democratic election in 2001, and I also remember the result. So we will, of course, consider carefully what the best way forward of consulting people is, and I would point out that, indeed, of course, we had a, a referendum in respect of the regional government assemblies. My right honourable friend will be aware of transport problems in rural communities such as my constituency in West Lancashire. Will my right honourable friend join me in calling on Lancashire County Council and private bus providers to leave, not to leave my constituents isolated and excluded from vital public services, including their hospital? Well, I do understand exactly uh, the point that my honourable friend raises and why she raises it. Um, we, we will be providing substantial levels of funding, around £1.4 billion per year um, in England over the last few years, and again, further sums of money over the next few. But I agree with her. Buses are often the backbone of the public transport system. They're essential for tackling congestion, meeting environmental targets, and indeed reducing social exclusion. And I understand entirely why it's important that we make sure we get the right balance between regulation and ensuring bus services have the freedom they need to operate effectively. Daniel Kavkinski. Yeah. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister has been to Shrewsbury on a number of occasions, and so he will know that the Royal Shrewsbury Hospital is over £29 million in debt. Will he give me a public assurance that this debt will not affect services and there will be no cuts to staff and services to my beloved Royal Shrewsbury Hospital? I mean, I'm afraid of, uh, despite, my, um, despite my connection with Shrewsbury that I, I know he knows, it is important that all hospitals live within their budgetary limits. And he will know that healthcare services in Shrewsbury and elsewhere have had a massive increase uh, in their budget in the years to come. 
uh, they will have further such rises, but in the end, they have to live within their means. And since we are giving very, very generous provision to hospitals, I don't think it's unreasonable for us to say there's got to be proper financial accountability for that. And I would point out, though the Honourable Gentleman did indeed win a seat at the last election, that he was standing on a platform of, actually of opposition to the huge amount of investment that's gone in. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Can I, can I um, say to my right honourable friend, the, the shooting of a police officer in Nottingham is one further evidence that the, the, the culture of the gun in our society is actually still in the ascendant. Can, can he promise the House and the country that he will galvanise everybody from the police through to the courts to make sure that the message that those who own, carry and use guns will be dealt with, they will be detected and the penalties will fit what the public believes to be the gravity of those crimes? Well, I, I totally uh, accept the point that my honourable friend makes, and, and incidentally, I know this is an issue he has campaigned long and hard on over the years, and I know that we would all wish to give our very best wishes to Ms Brown and to all of her, her family, um, who was um, so wrongly and tragically uh, shot in Nottingham yesterday. Um, let me also say, however, that since we introduced the law that makes it a, a mandatory five-year sentence for the possession of firearms. I think there has been an impact, but we need to do far more, particularly in relation to organised crime. And I just want to say something here, because over the next few months we will be publishing proposals on organised crime that will coincide with the introduction of the new serious organised crime agency. And I think we need, in the same way that we have with antisocial behaviour legislation and indeed with terrorist legislation, introduce tougher laws that make it harder for these people to operate, because much of the gun crime is associated with drugs and illegal people trafficking and organised crime. Simon Hughes. Given, given that since Labour came to power, the average cost of a first home has gone from two and a half times income to over four times income. And the number of people, and the number of people waiting to be housed has gone from 800,000 to 1,400,000. Why is the Blair legacy in housing British people at a cost they can afford so dreadful? Great question. Great. Um, well, let me just explain to him uh, that one of the reasons why, of course, house prices have gone up is that we've had an immensely strong economy. Um, and one fortunate aspect of that is that the running of it has been nothing to do with the Liberal Democrats. Um, the second thing is that we have actually, in London and elsewhere, put a lot of money into trying to support first-time home buyers. We're about to do a lot more. And over the next few years, particularly through shared equity schemes, we're going to help a lot of young people own their home for the first time. He's absolutely right to draw attention to the problem. But as ever, the solution that he has is somewhat lacking. Gordon Banks. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, does my right honourable friend agree with me and many members of this House that the role of the Bevan boys played in World War II was fundamental in ensuring the defeat of Nazi tyranny? Does he also agree with me that their role should now be officially recognised in a similar way as our World War II combat veterans? Well, I'm happy to, uh, to consider what my honourable friend has said, and, and there's no doubt at all uh, the Bevan boys played a huge uh, played a huge part in defeating the Nazi tyranny in the Second World War, and it's our debt to them is one of the reasons why this government decided it had to take forward the Miners' Compensation Scheme, which I know has brought help uh, and relief to many thousands of families up and down the United Kingdom. Stephen Cobb. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Yeah. Yeah. 
The Prime Minister is aware that two of the world's largest liquefied natural gas terminals are currently being built in my constituency, immediately alongside two major oil refineries and the UK's largest fuel storage depot, three times the size of Bunsfield. Cuts to my local fire service will soon leave Pembrokeshire without one single 24-hour fire station. Will the Prime Minister please urgently review this matter and ensure that the people of Pembrokeshire have adequate fire and rescue cover in future? I'm happy to look into uh, the point that he makes, but I have to say again, obviously it's important that the fire services, like everyone else, live within their means and configure their services in the most effective way possible. And whatever amount of money we put in, there is always going to be a limit to it. Um, The decisions, however, have got to be taken locally. Now, I don't know enough about the individual circumstances of his fire services, but I'll certainly look into it and write to him. Many people throughout the country will have celebrated Valentine's Day, but for many, Valentine's Day had a peculiar poignancy with the launch of a domestic violence campaign in Wales and other parts of the UK. In nine months of last year, over 12,750 cases of domestic violence were reported to the South Wales Police alone, and they estimate that only 35% of cases are actually reported. What more can we do as a government to tackle domestic violence, and would he support the role being played by my honourable friend in Bridgend to bring a domestic violence court to Bridgend? Well, I can't tell him exactly what we can do in relation to Bridgend, but I'm very happy to, to look into that. But what he's saying about domestic violence is absolutely right. And we have invested somewhere in the region of £70 million to date. We're to invest even more. Uh, we're providing support for refugees. But One thing is very, very important, as I know my honourable friend would agree, and that is that people who are victims of domestic violence are coming forward and reporting it in ever larger numbers, and the police service, I'm pleased to say, is handling such complaints a lot more sensitively. And one of the reasons why we have such an increase in the recorded violent crime statistics is not that domestic violence itself has risen, but that people are coming forward and recording it, reporting it to the police, and the police are recording it, and that is actually beneficial. And I can assure him we will continue um, to support the, the, uh, the Alliance Against Domestic Violence that was launched um, just about two years ago, uh, one year ago, and I think it's a very important signal that this government, and indeed our country, takes domestic violence seriously. Nigel Watterson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I tell the Prime Minister that since I last raised it with him, my local NHS has gone from bad to worse? And is he aware that there are now proposals to close the maternity unit, the special care baby unit, the children's ward, uh, and no doubt other features of our local hospital? And can I tell him that bed blocking has now soared to 100 beds in the trust? It is true, of course, also, that all the waiting times and waiting list targets have been met. But I agree, there are real problems in the health care organisation in the Honourable Gentleman's constituency. But again, where there is a very large deficit, and this is the important thing that has to happen now, as this vast additional investment has gone in, we have to make sure there are proper systems of financial accountability. Now, we will work with the people who are organising health care in Uh, the Honourable Member's constituency. But what we can't do, frankly, is say, whatever your deficit, the government will come and bail it out. He knows he's had huge real terms increases um, under this government for health care in his area, far greater than anything put in by the last Conservative government. But whatever the increases in money, the money's got to be properly accounted for. And if services aren't properly run in an area, and therefore there's a deficit, we have to tackle it, I'm afraid. And to suggest otherwise, I don't think really is responsible. 